Scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 2. I invite you to stand with me and follow along in your Bibles or in your worship guide. Psalm 2, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord and it will endure forever. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Good morning. It is a joy to be here with you all this morning. Um, I have had the joy and the privilege to watch uh, God build this congregation from the very beginning. And uh, it is a joy to be here in the midst of it this morning proclaiming God's truth to you. I was in the office this morning. Uh, Wheatland has an early service. I bring you greetings from Wheatland, by the way. I see some familiar faces out there, and I bring you greetings from a sister church. Uh, But I was in the office this morning, and uh, Keith Winder was in there getting ready for uh, our services. Keith is our associate pastor. And he said, so Troy has you going on his sabbatical. And I said, yeah, that's right. And I was feeling pretty good about that. And he says, that, that means he doesn't expect much of you. Um, it gives a lot of time later on uh, for people to fix what's been broken from the beginning. So anyway, I bring greetings from Keith as well, I guess, at one level. Well, we are delighted, uh, our family is delighted to be here with you um, And Terry Lynn and I uh, are enjoying a rich and happy season in our life as parents. We just dropped off our eldest daughter at Wheaton College for her freshman year. And um, our 12-year-old Anna is a dependable, lovely girl. She's almost always able and eager to take charge over her sister and her baby brother. If Terry Lynn and I want to slip out and walk around the corner to one of our favorite restaurants, maybe for the evening. But consider this. If Anna, my middle daughter, was given charge of our household for a bit while Terry Lynn and I walked around the corner to this favorite restaurant, I want you to think with me this morning about the authority that Anna has in that moment. Anna receives a unique sort of authority. It is authority for sure in our absence, but it's not autonomy. We must know 
the difference, as we'll hear in Psalm 2. Authority is power that is received from another who legitimately possesses authority and gives it. Authority is received, but authority is never alone. It comes with accountability to the one from whom that authority was received. Now, autonomy is different. Autonomy is self-referential. Autonomy is the desire to answer only to one's self. So back to my little story then with those two things lined out for us, authority and autonomy. Anna has received authority in this little made-up story, but she is not autonomous. She has not become the one frame of reference who gets to establish now new rules of the house. Now, the truth is, in being given authority, Anna may become seduced by that gift of authority. She may uh, very well confuse the gift of authority with autonomy. And with the rents out of the picture, as the kids say, she, uh, autonomy may even appear to Anna to be, in that moment, absolute truth itself. But despite all appearances that may lead her and even her siblings in that moment to believe in autonomy, it is absolutely untrue. We have left her in charge, but not to do as she pleases. We have simply shared with her, as the image of our authority in our absence, we have shared with her to continue the sort of gracious and loving reign that her mother and I have established already in the home. That gracious and loving bit, of course, is my own opinion of our reign in the house. So if the minute that we close the front door behind us, Anna gets into the liquor cabinet and makes a gin and tonic for herself and plops down on the couch to watch Hulu and ignores her duty to care for her siblings, or even worse, serves up all of the siblings' gin and tonics, and they eagerly join in and sing songs and raise glasses to her brilliant unseating of the harsh overlords. She has cast off our authority. As the psalmist put it that you just heard read for you, she has cast off their core, our cords. Now, just in case you're wondering, this has never happened in our family, at least not with gin and tonics. But it's happened in lots of other ways, and not simply from the kids of the family. Sometimes the worst and most devastating effects of autonomy actually are manifest in my own life as a father. Friends, the point of this little made-up story is to underline for us this morning that the rejection of God's authority and the grasping for autonomy 
is the story of the world. It's the story that Genesis opens with. It's the story that the Psalms begin with. And if we're honest this morning, and I think if we'll look deeply enough, we'll see that it's actually all of our stories as well. And I think that that in mind orients us here at the beginning to hear this psalm too. To hear Psalm 2 as it's meant to be heard by God's people this morning. As a stark reminder and a, a stirring call to face the reality of our own hearts. As we are shaped by this prayer book of the Psalms into people who will live in intimate and vital relationship with God, into people who will become the blessed and flourishing children of our Father. And so Psalm 2 begins with this question. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? Now I imagine that many of you here today know Psalm 1 far better than you know Psalm 2. Perhaps you've even memorized Psalm 1 when you were a child in Sunday school. Psalm 1 describes for us the blessed or happy life and and how delighting and meditating on the law of God is a way to a life of flourishing in the world. Uh, you know probably the opening anyway by heart. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But Psalm 2 is different. It gets dark pretty quickly, doesn't it? It's not your typical Sunday school material. In fact, It's almost as if Psalm 2 follows up Psalm 1 by demanding, but where is this blessed man? It's almost as if in these opening lines of Psalm 2, the psalmist says, blessed may very well be that man, but the reality that I see all around me are nations raging and people plotting and rulers of the earth allied together in an attempt to overthrow the Lord of all. And why are the nations and peoples giving themselves to this raging and plotting? Why are earthly kings and rulers taking up positions of opposition and plotting together in defiance against Yahweh and his anointed king, his Messiah? Verse 3 tells us why all the rebellion and foment. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, accountability is not welcome. The rulers and kings and nations and peoples desired to rule the world, but not underneath the law of the Lord from Psalm 1. In other words, this is a dictum. You can stroke this down as true. Humanity isn't satisfied with authority. Humanity demands autonomy. 
And as I pointed out a moment ago, this is not simply the opening of the book of Psalms. I don't know if you know this, but Psalm 1 and 2 together actually form the introduction to the entire Psalms. They're, they're really meant to be read together. But, but this isn't simply the opening of the book of Psalms. We actually return to the Garden of Eden and we remember what humans were originally created to be and to do. The beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 through 3, very much like Psalm 1 and 2 serves as the opening introduction for all of the Psalms. Genesis 1 through 3 serves as the fundamental opening to the Old Testament and all of the story of redemption. And in Genesis 1 through 3, we find that humans were created in God's image to fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over the world. Humans, both men and women, were created in God's image to rule. To be human is to be designed to take control of the created world and subdue it and and rule over it. Men and women, all of us, kids, all of us are naturally born rulers. To be human is to aspire toward control and dominion over the world and in the world. That's what it means to be human. In the Garden of Eden, while Adam and Eve were created as images of God, it was God's loving and generous rule his unique authority over all things as creator, that they were meant to be bringing bear upon the created order. We know this is true because the defining mark of humanity is that they were created in the image of God. In other words, the very DNA of all humanity is the investiture of God's authority that has been graciously granted to them As God's image. They were created, Adam and Eve, as God's little authority figures. To stretch all of their cognitive and creative skills with the task of extending the order of the garden that they were placed into out over all of creation. And you see in this Uh, authority that they were to be living under as a mark of what it meant to be human, as, as what it meant to be in the image of God. You see that in that there was a boundary placed on their consumption. Do you remember what that boundary was? It was not even a strict boundary. It was, in fact, a very gracious and generous boundary. Every tree of the garden, God said, I have given you for food. Every tree that you see here, son and daughter, I have given you for food except for one. Now, that was not a capricious God who was toying or even experimenting with human desire. This was a loving boundary laid down by God to invite and remind his children at every moment to live under his authority as they exercised loving and uh, exercised authority and loving dominion and brought order to the world around them. 
They were meant to be creatively recreative in that endeavor, imitating in miniature God's own work at creation. And in this way, they would reflect the authority of God out into every corner of the world that God had created. Yet in Genesis 3, because you know it so well, I'm presuming upon your knowledge here, the crisis in the story for God's children becomes a choice between authority or autonomy. Did The questions Adam and Eve are asking is, did God actually set this boundary? And exactly what was his motive in doing so? And without going into all that can be unpacked from the interchange with the serpent, the truth, nonetheless, is that in Genesis, God's people grasp after autonomy rather than living in authority. And this brings death and destruction in the world. And I give you all that as background because this is the context and this is the ongoing crisis into which Psalm 2 opens. I love these first few verses of Psalm 2. I love this setup to the entire Psalter. The Psalter is what it means for humans to be in relationship with God. The Psalter is a prayer book and a guidebook, a songbook for God's people. It is the anatomy of what it looks like for humans to be in relationship with God. And this is how the Psalms open. And I love it because Psalm 2 gives us a vision of our predicament. Psalm 2 gives us a vision of the world as it really is. It doesn't pull any punches about the geopolitical or cultural landscape and what that means for those who will seek to live in obedience to King Jesus. And it does not pull any punches about the difficulty of living in a world in loyalty to a kingdom that is not of this world. In just the first three verses of Psalm 2, we learn what to expect in a world where earthly powers have from the beginning sought to detach from the reality that actually it is God who reigns over all, and it is Christ who is enthroned as king of this world. The question the psalmist seems to be asking, I think, with his opening question, why do the nations rage? The question that he's asking from a place of faith and trust is this. Who is it that rules the world? Is it the kings and rulers of the earth? Or is it God's king, God's anointed one? And I want us to notice together this morning God's response to the rebellion and plot of earthly kings and rulers and powers. Look at verse 4 in front of you. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Did you notice the imagery that the psalmist gives us? God 
stays seated. He chuckles. He mocks their plans with laughter. He doesn't even bother to stand up. In verses 4 through 6, God simply speaks a word to the world in its chaos. Another echo back to Genesis 1. In other words, the kingdom of God is not shaken or rattled one bit by the posturing and plotting of earthly powers. God says, I have installed my king in Zion. Instead of hand-wringing, these verses tell us that God laughs. And then he terrifies all the pretend powers of the world. How does he terrify them? He terrifies them by saying in verse 6, there already is a king and you ain't him. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's king has always terrified those who are unwilling to live under his authority and who demand autonomy instead. But I also want you to consider the comfort to God's people in this response. All of the raging and plotting and conspiring against God's king cannot undo or overthrow his reign. The righteous one from Psalm 1 That blessed man is now the royal son in Psalm 2. He has been installed as king. And according to his own report in verses 7 through 9, God has told him that he is the son. He is the heir of all things. Everything that the nations and the rulers are plotting for and grasping toward and trying to grab to themselves God says in verses 7 through 9, all of that belongs to my son, my king. Listen to verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In verse 8, if this king will but ask of his father, if this begotten son will but ask of his father, he will be given the nations and all the land to the ends of the earth as his inheritance. Isn't that what Adam was meant to do and, 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 to, and to put under God's authority? And in verse 9, judgment will be brought on those who persist in their rebellion and refuse this king and his rule in his reign. There's a real sense in which verses 7 through 9 restate God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. A, a, a son is begotten who will rescue the nations and possess the earth in humble submission to the Father. Friends, in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises to establish his rule on earth and to crush the head of the evil one have begun to be fulfilled. And verses 10 through 12 are the conclusion of Psalm 2. And I think they're the gateway to the rest of the Psalms and to faithful life with our Father. Listen to them. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, 
Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed. We started with a blessed in Psalm 1. And now this is why Psalm 1 and 2 are, are almost meant to be taken together. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These are stern words for those kings and rulers and everyone else who failed to recognize and bow before Jesus, God's king. They're words of judgment that echo verse 9 where those who refuse the king will be broken by the king's rod of iron. And that rod of iron is his just and righteous rule over all. But these verses, friends, are not all judgment. In fact, these final verses are a gracious invitation to you and to me this morning. These final verses are filled with mercy and love. They are redolent with God's patience and his kindness. Even though they contain this stern warning of of be warned and wise up and the command to kiss the sun, we must hear these as an invitation into a life of blessedness. It is a gracious invitation into a life of blessedness because it is an invitation out of all of our own destructive autonomy. Autonomy that can only offer us the freedom to die. You see, this King Jesus is offering us the life of his gracious and loving authority. And that authority is centered in and on his very own life and death. We must see this morning, friends, that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are God's answer for all of our own desperate grasping at the delusion of autonomy. How is it that the cross and the resurrection are answers for our own grasp at autonomy? It's because God himself takes on human flesh in Jesus. Jesus, as the final Adam, in divine humility, submits to the authority of his Father. Does not think equality with God is something to be held on to. And he takes all of our sinful rebellion on his own human body, and he succumbs to death. And Jesus' resurrection after his death, is God's yes to his obedience and his submission. And at the same time, it is God's no to all other pretend kings, rulers, and powers in the world. The cross and the resurrection, that act by our Lord Jesus has destroyed forever humanity's delusion to autonomy because it is in itself the greatest act of human submission 
to divine authority ever conceived or accomplished. The cross and the resurrection, brother and sister, are far more than your personal salvation. They are that, but they're far more than that. They are the actual enthronement of Jesus as the world's true king. And though in our brokenness and sinfulness, we cannot help sometimes but be cruel and illegitimate rulers through his loving sacrifice. Christ has reinstated his loving and legitimate claim as king over the world and over you and me. Through the cross and resurrection, Christ has stripped Satan and all earthly powers of their claim to authority. And as king, Christ now reigns far above all earthly rulers and powers. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. All things are his. All things are under his feet. This is true in this moment, and it's becoming truer every day in spite of what it appears to be the way the world works. And we're waiting for the day when this king will return and put the world back perfectly in order under his gracious and loving rule and reign. And I hope you can tease out a little bit of what this means for us this morning. We, from our places, our own real, deep, struggles at grasping towards autonomy, we this morning are invited to let go of our anxious and empty quest for autonomy and to find our refuge in Jesus. As one theologian put it, there is no refuge from God's King Jesus. There is only refuge in Jesus. But this letting go of the delusion of autonomy And finding our refuge in Jesus does not come natural to us, brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question to dig a bit deeper into that struggle that we all share. How will you respond in a culture where it seems, where it appears to be, that every trace of Christ's kingship and kingdom is being systematically removed from every place where his authority was intended to be acknowledged. What do you do when you see his signature, his image, his authority being erased from the very places that you know only his words can bring life and real healing and flourishing? I imagine that the temptation you will face in those moments is to see that and recognize it clearly and then to live in despair or anxiety or perhaps, as is the fashion in the moment, outrage at the way the world is conspiring against God's king. In verse 12, I'm sorry, but I'm asking you this morning to consider that 
Psalm 2 is actually charting for us. Another path, another path other than despair or deep anxiety or outrage. In verse 12, we find our blessedness, our happiness in taking refuge in this King Jesus. We have hope for refuge in the Son because this anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, has borne the wrath of God upon all those who plotted anarchy and rebellion against him. And friends, our path is not despair or anxiety or outrage. In fact, brothers and sisters, the church of whom Jesus is our head, that doesn't mean he's the boss and we can kind of do what we want while he's not here. It means we are vitally connected like a body is connected to its head. The head of our church is Jesus and he reigns. And therefore, brothers and sisters, the church must not be a place of despair or anxiety or outrage. The world must have a church that does not mirror itself. The world must have a church that is there for the healing of the world. And brothers and sisters, the way that we healed the world, not because of us, but because of our king and his gospel and his good news is that we as a church are a non-anxious flourishing presence smack in the middle of all of the raging and vain plotting around us. How do we do that? We're doing it right now this morning, brothers and sisters. As the church, we live out this non-anxious presence together in our gathered worship and through our service to the world around us. In worship, we come together this morning to confidently confess that in spite of everything and all the news headlines, in spite of all of that, we gather this morning together to remind ourselves and one another that Jesus is the world's true king. Winsomely and confidently but firmly, we call all the kings and rulers of the earth to pay homage to this King Jesus, to kiss the Son. That is, embrace the Son, submit to his loving reign. And church, in our service, we ourselves refuse to live grasping for the delusion of autonomy in in any area of our lives like the rest of the culture around us. Instead, we offer up our very lives as one church in humble obedience to Christ's authority. And when the church is marginalized from power, when the church is rejected as irrelevant, brothers and sisters, we don't grasp with outrage at what we've lost, and we don't give up in despair. We take blessed and happy refuge in the promise of the king who's coming to make all things new. May God give us as his people the faith and the patience and the humility 
and the courage and the wisdom to live for that day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.